Hey all, Aiden here. I don't have a new pen and sword episode for you today, though we should be throwing up a new discussion episode plus a book club episode shortly, but rather a project stemming from connections made within MWG and uh, containing some of the same goals as the organization. War Stories is a narrative show that's being written and produced by myself and former guest on the show, Angry Staff Officer. In it, we take a component of warfare, think uh, artillery, tanks, or strategy, and trace this development throughout history with a focus on telling the stories of those who are there. In this first season of the show, we're taking on armor. The episode that follows is a prologue to this season and details the final cavalry charge before the invention of tanks. If you enjoy what you hear, please do visit www.warstoriescast.com, where you can subscribe to the show, sign up for our newsletter, and check out some background on it. Uh, Without further ado, here's the show. There's this thing with wars. They give us a lot of stories. And we mean a lot. All it takes is thinking back to your last family reunion. So there I was. Happy stories, sad stories, funny stories, and absolutely crushing ones. It's how we connect to something so seemingly inhuman but also uniquely human. Even with these anecdotes, however small, we gain insight into something larger. We can trace trends, histories, technological developments, all through the medium of storytelling. And from these stories, we can learn about the nature of war. And with that, maybe something about humanity itself. Along the way, we'll meet fascinating people, see incredible places, and examine some turning points in the history of conflict. I'm Aiden Dobkin. And I'm Angry Staff Officer. And this is War Stories. Firstly, a quick aside. Thanks all for joining us on the show, Launch. In this season, we're talking about armor and armor tactics in warfare. And for all you body armor aficionados out there, we're talking tanks, not suits of armor. But isn't body armor sort of like a tank, just smaller and for people? See, that's exactly the kind of thing we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Where did armor come from? How did it develop? And so on. And to do that, we're going to be talking about a lot more than tanks. We're spanning a century of warfare while making quick leaps back in time. As with the other future seasons of the show, we'll be doing it in a way that focuses on the stories of those who are there at key points in its development. You can basically think of us as your war time machine. But hey, does that make me Bill or Ted? I'm just going to uh, ignore that. In any case, we hope you stay tuned and enjoy the series. So I got to thinking the other day, when did we decide on tanks? I mean, it's an imposing machine to just drop on the battlefield at some point in a war. 
pretty much going to blow anything that comes up against it out of the water in those early days, right? So like what wooden stakes were to Dracula, tanks were to some unfortunate European army in the early 20th century? Something like that. Well, sure. But Dracula also managed to do pretty well for himself before he was caught on the wrong side of a gardening utensil. So that must mean tanks are a reaction to something pretty potent. Let's put it this way. So the firearm hits Europe at a time when the Americas are still the sort of vague, unmapped territory. Everyone is dying from weird diseases. And Spain, of all countries, is the dominant world power. And it's nothing short of a revolution in warfare. And probably something even more. Now you don't have to be inches away from an opponent, staring him in the face while you're trying to kill him. Totally. As time goes on, they get more lethal. But still, for two centuries, we're only really talking about firing three rounds a minute tops, right? Yeah. It doesn't sound like a fun Call of Duty experience. And a lot can happen when you're reloading. Like, what if something comes at you fast? Like, running fast? Like, horse fast. But make that lots of horses, with angry dudes, with sabers. Makes for a bad day. But something happens in the second half of the 19th century that changes everything. We unlock that next COD rifle class. In a big way. Repeating rifles give infantry grunts the capability to fire 10 to 15 rounds per minute. And then some enterprising souls realize they can take it a step further. Fully automatic fire. Three whole centuries of how wars are fought suddenly come to a screeching halt. Yeah, the bayonet charge, mass volley firing and formation, those just become giant targets, don't they? Yeah. You'd think that everyone would stop for a second and go, whoa, maybe this whole war thing isn't the best move anymore. Remember how the atomic bomb was supposed to end all war because it was so destructive? They said the same thing about the machine gun. They called it the peace preserver in advertisements. Hang on, I've got this British jingle stuck in my head. Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. But what happens when everyone has them? You get a world war. More casualties than most can fathom. A front the troops only refer to as the meat grinder. But if that meat is bottled up and can shoot back... That makes it a lot harder for you to grind it, yeah. Sounds something like a pressure cooker. Without a release. So when does it hit capacity? Well, it's hard to pin down a specific point, but our closest approximation is high wood. Longueval is a small town in northern France. I suppose it's not even technically a town, it's a commune, but that's besides the point. In any case, if you found yourself in Longueval and wanted to explore some of the surrounding area, you could head north on one of the few roads out of town, D-107. The drive isn't a particularly exciting one as you leave, just farmlands on both sides of the highway. But about three or four minutes down the road, you'd come upon a strange little wooded area off to the right-hand side. The wood is the peak of the surrounding area. It's how it's got its name. But it's shallow enough that you'd never realize it unless you were looking really hard. It hasn't changed much in the past century. Sure, there's a pond in the southeast corner that wasn't created until fall of 1916. But besides that, what did change since then has since been reclaimed by nature. 
Of course, there is also what was lost in the woods, and that we can never even begin to measure. You see, during the Battle of the Somme, Highwood was the site of some of the most intense fighting of the war. Both sides clashed over its control for months in the latter half of 1916. One of the battles over its control was the Battle of Byzantine Ridge. The battle started about two weeks after the eruption of the Somme, which left 1.3 million casualties in its wake. Take a minute to think about that number. 1.3 million casualties. In 1916, the population of New York City was about 5 million people, so that's akin to wounding or killing over one-fifth of everyone in, in New York over the course of a few weeks. It's the type of thing the mind has trouble even fathoming. For two weeks, the British pounded the German lines, just trying to get some sort of a breakthrough. But the Germans held successive lines of defense, a tactic called defense in depth, and one the Entente, the nations opposing Germany and its allies, had not been anticipating, or if they had, one which they weren't prepared for. Rather than field one heavily defended line which could be outflanked or exploited in some other way, the Germans deployed their resources across multiple successive lines. They filled these lines with supporting artillery and machine gun positions, well out of the reach of British artillery. This created space and time where the Germans could counterattack or bring in reserves, forcing the British to lose momentum, and with it, leave themselves open. We usually think of trenches like the ones at Highwood as muddy caverns full of lice and rats, which, to be fair, were what they often were. But the Germans had brought something new to the game, concrete. Something so simple, it seems unnecessary to even mention, right? Soldiers from Britain, France, and the US remarked over and over at how, well, nice the German trenches were. In addition to concrete positions, the Germans strung miles and miles of barbed wire obstacles across the front of their positions. These would be designed to slow attacking troops and make them vulnerable to artillery and machine gun fire. In this hellscape, why would anyone think of introducing horses? And you'd have a legitimate question. But with that said, horses played a long-standing important role in battles pretty much as far back as we can remember. First for transportation, getting there firstest with the mostest, as Confederate cavalryman Nathan Bedford Forrest reputedly said, is one of the key tenets of warfare. And then there's reconnaissance. Historically, cavalry have always been the eyes and ears of an army. They scout the enemy's lines, routes of march, and prevent enemy scouts from viewing friendly troop movements. And last but not least is breakthrough and exploitation. The cavalry charge was both a physical and a psychological weapon. Thousands of horses at full canter or gallop was often enough to break an enemy soldier's spirit. And because of the increased mobility of mounted soldiers, the cavalry could be used to follow up a breakthrough and harry retreating troops, keeping them from reforming, and possibly threaten enemy command posts and lines of supply. 
Now, when we talk about horses in warfare, were these the sort of horses that were pulling plows on the farm one day and then shipped off to battle alongside whoever owned them? Well, the shortest answer is that it depends. But if you're not a military like, say, the Confederacy during the Civil War, who asked their soldiers to bring along their horses, getting mounts for your troops is something you took pretty seriously. And another thing, horses weren't used by just the cavalry. They were used to haul the artillery's guns, to carry supplies, and as a plan B for messengers when the telephone lines were cut. In a modern war where aircraft and trucks were used, it does seem odd to think about horses being a commonplace sight. But they were. And how important were they? Between 1914 and 1918, the British government purchased over one million horses and mules from the UK, North and South America, Spain, and Portugal. And unsurprisingly, the breeds of horses used for these various tasks roughly fell under the old adage of form mirrors function. While cavalry might have used horses that were prized for their agility and coolness under fire, Horses used for logistical tasks might be slower, but more well-suited for carrying heavy loads. And some, like the Cleveland Bay, were very nearly wiped out entirely by the war. In addition to your variety of combat-related deaths from gas, machine guns, and artillery fire, exhaustion, falling into artillery shell holes, and regional dangers like the tsetse fly in Africa all contributed to serious strains on the stocks of the warring countries. And it took a toll on more than just the industry. The bond between men and horses was profound. Men would often put gas masks on their own horses before donning their own. And men grieved for their mounts when they fell, as they would grieve for their own comrades. This bond was almost ancient. In a truly modern war, cavalry harkened back to a time when war was almost a gentleman's occupation. Of course, this was no such war. Killing was indiscriminate. The wealthy, educated, and privileged fell alongside the poor and destitute. Death democratized the imperial powers. How, might you ask, did British Tommies fight and die alongside Indian Sikhs and Muslims? How were French poilus accompanied in death by Senegalese fighters? Well, the same way that a unit of Indian lancers from Hyderabad ended up spurring their horses over the congested and shelled out roads in France on the morning of July 14th. To even understand the background of Highwood, we've got to go back a little bit. Okay, we have to go back a long way. 1790, in fact. Why are we going back all that way? Well... You remember the East India Company? Like that British East India Company? Slave trade, rule over India, that East India Company? Indeed. Okay, I'm not sure I still follow. Believe it or not, the actions of the East India Company all the way back in the 18th century played a direct role in World War I. Why am I only mildly surprised? Okay, so, way back in the day, the British exercised control of India through, of all things, a mercantile corporation. It was called the East India Company, and in the 18th century, it had an army larger than many world powers. Over time, the facade of the East India Company simply went away, and the British took direct colonial rule of large swaths of India. As part of this, they created the British Indian Army. In most units, the enlisted men were Indian, while the officers were British. 
and despite a mutiny or two or five, it seemed to work pretty well. Now, this was nothing new. Most nations with colonies had native troops fighting under their flags. France, for example, had many African colonies. Most of these colonial troops aided in keeping regional stability for the home countries, preventing massive drafts of men from being posted in foreign climes. Native troops stayed in their native lands. Until 1914 to 1915, that is, when home country armies began to bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed, and all of a sudden this mass of trained troops from India and Africa started to look really tempting. Of course, you couldn't just pull thousands of troops from another continent and shove them into the front lines of the most deadly war in human history without repercussions. How would you keep a Sikh lancer or a Senegalese warrior content with colonialism when they saw the haphazard way commanders treated human life? Maybe, just maybe, these weren't the wisest rulers after all. And yet, the Indian troops fought as if it was their war. The British did a remarkable job of accommodating wounded Indian soldiers who were sent back to England for treatment. Segregated wards for men and women, different hospitals for different religions, dietary restrictions, the list went on. The king would even visit to put a human face on the empire. Reading the letters of the many Indian soldiers, it's clear that these accommodations were appreciated. On the front lines, however, things were a bit different. It was a war, after all. There's not much that can be done to ensure that food was served ritually or that holy days were observed. Many Indians dealt with this stoically and made exceptions to their dogmas, just another casualty of war. It still rankled, though. Also, France was hardly the warm country that these soldiers had left, particularly in the winter. The several Indian infantry divisions on the Western Front suffered from the cold, and poor equipment, and new replacement officers that didn't speak the language, and lots of casualties, over 9,000 killed in action. Morale dropped in the Indian infantry divisions. In fact, morale became so bad that in 1915 they were removed to serve in Africa. But not so the cavalry. The two Indian cavalry divisions remained on the Western Front until 1918. And like the British cavalry divisions, the Indian cavalry waited behind the main lines, harboring their strength for a breakout, like a mass of water behind a dam just waiting for the sluice to open so they could pour through, bugle sounding, saber shining, lances poised, to cut down the hated Bosch. But what chance did cavalry have of doing any of this in the moonscape that was the Somme? Massive shell holes dotted the fields, trenches ran zigzag across the landscape, wire entanglements could trip horse and rider, and then, of course, there were the machine guns, thousands of rounds chattering away at a mass of seething men and horses. Seemingly a recipe for suicide. But that's not what happened, is it? Well, that's where we travel back to Longueval, 
though this time in the midst of the Somme offensive. So come July 14th, the offensive had been raging for exactly two weeks. The first portion of it, the Battle of Albert, had been closed in the days prior with the Entente forces succeeding in gaining control of the first German trench position. At around 3 a.m. in the morning, early enough so that the German machine gun positions couldn't quite see far enough outside the wire, the attack on the German second position began with arguably the first thing you think of when you talk about World War I, artillery. Five minutes before the first lieutenant blew his trench whistle, the barrage began. What followed was an experience not only unique to those who served in the wars prior to World War I, but by most measures unique to those conflicts that followed. With the artillery barrage came an overburdening of the entire sensory experience, in addition to the near-continuous crack of high-explosive shells, which ranged in size from small to hundreds of pounds, sometimes coming down with many more than one per second, was the concussive force of the blast, itself powerful enough to kill those who strayed too close. Major Neil Fraser Tyler, a British officer there on July 14th, described the initial hurricane barrage as the whole world breaking into gunfire, the darkness lit up by thousands of gun flashes, bursting shells along the northern skyline, followed by a succession of frantic SOS rockets and the glare of burning Hun ammunition dumps. Following the initial barrage, Entente soldiers came trailing in behind another, this one precisely timed to advance 50 yards in front of the soldiers as they crept along toward the position. They cautiously advanced through no man's land, a move that would have been deemed suicidal at most times of the day, until they hit the largely abandoned German trench. In the following few hours, Entente forces gradually captured points of Bazentin Ridge including Longueval itself. From the captured trenches of Longueval, they would have been able to look northwest towards the relative peak of Highwood, or at least what was left of it. Even in the relatively short two weeks since the outbreak of fighting, what was once a densely wooded 75 acres of land had turned into little more than a plain of varying sized toothpicks, thanks to the tons of artillery dropped on it. Initially, General Henry Rawlinson, the commanding general of the forces, sought to quickly advance upon Highwood while it was still abandoned by the Germans in the aftermath of the morning hours. However, in the words of Helmuth von Moltke, no plan survives contact with the enemy. The remaining infantry troops who otherwise would have been available for the capturing of Highwood at its most vulnerable were under orders to stand guard for a potential German counterattack on the positions they'd already captured. This meant that troops away from the front needed to be called forward for the assault, diminishing the opportunity for exploiting the relative calm. It's here where we turn to an unnamed officer of the Deck and Horse, uh, one of the British Indian cavalry units held back to exploit key points in the battle, who received news of their order to ride at 6.30 p.m. that day. Every now and then we came under heavy shell fire, shrapnel and high explosive. There is not room for a tablecloth on any part of the ground without some part of it touching a shell hole, 
So you can imagine the regiment galloping over it, barbed wire, well cut by shellfire, old trenches, dead bodies, and every sort of debris lying in every direction. Words fail me to describe it. That was about for three miles, then full tilt down a steep bank into a very famous valley where the shrapnel got worse as we were spotted by one of their sausage balloons. So, the 20th Deccan Horse and the 7th Dragoons Guards Regiment, themselves almost polar opposites in the British Army, you might say, the one being the colonial troops of empire and the other the literal household cavalry to the crown, found themselves riding together into the front lines. And there's this really vivid, almost tragic moment as the cavalry make their way into the front, where as the horsemen are cantering by in neat lines, the artillerymen and infantry stop everything and madly cheer for the horsemen, as the Deccan horse officer describes. Of course, after the morning hours with their decisive win, it's safe to presume that the soldiers had much to cheer for, at least as much as one can hope for in the midst of a war. But one can't help but wonder if the troops were cheering for something more than the men in their success in battle. Perhaps cheering for something that had been long lost in the horrors of the Great War. Cheering for what had once been noble. The cavalrymen then leave the relative protection of the British lines until we were under the cover here for half a mile. But suddenly, coming out of the valley, we had to turn sharp to the right up another little valley. And here we came under terrific, but rather inaccurate machine gun fire from two directions. I cannot tell you anything about casualties, but it was here my chestnut mare was killed. What's with all these turns? Remember how we talked about the difficulty of mobility and terrain full of shell holes and trenches. Throughout all of warfare, terrain has dictated where troops can move, and this is especially true with horses. The Germans clearly realized this and placed their machine guns where they could get overlapping fields of fire on what we would now refer to as avenues of approach. It seems like this whole affair would just be destined for massacre. Horses charging into machine guns. It does seem like that. In fact, to those watching, that's what they thought as well. Take Captain Graham Hutchinson, commanding a British machine gun company, who watched this whole thing unfold. As my eyes searched the valley for reinforcements, I decried a squadron of Indian cavalry, dark faces under glistening helmets, galloping across the valley towards the slope. No troop could have presented a more inspiring sight than these natives of India with lance and sword, tearing in mad cavalcade on the skyline, turning their horses' heads with shrill cries, these masters of horsemanship gallop through a hell of fire, lifting their mounts lightly over yawning shell holes, turning and twisting through the barrage of great shells, the ranks thinned, not a man escaped. And it wasn't just Hutchinson, a British artillery lieutenant recalled the charge 60 years later, it was an incredible sight, an unbelievable sight. They simply galloped through all that and horses and men dropping on the ground with no hope against the machine guns. It was an absolute rout, a magnificent sight. Tragic. So, were they wiped out? The quotes, while assuredly romantic, made it seem as though they were pretty much doomed against the machine guns and artillery fire. You do get that sense, right? But... 
It's one of those weird things about combat. Looks can be deceiving. Men can walk through an artillery barrage unscathed. The beaches at Normandy or the hills of Iwo Jima can get pummeled by naval gunfire and aerial bombing for hours, even days, and yet when ground forces advance, the enemy is still there. In this case, to the infantry, the cavalry disappearing into a cloud of smoke and explosions seemed to be a lost cause. Let's go back to that unnamed officer from the deck and horse. He mentioned they took inaccurate machine gun fire and kept going for another mile up into the valley. Now that's quite a ways, at least to a foot soldier. For a horseman, however, that's not that far. And they were moving so quickly that they simply rushed right through the Germans' kill zone. He then goes on to say, It was now about 7.30 in the evening, and there were 24 airplanes hovering over us, and one monoplane came down to about 200 feet and fired his machine guns on the Huns just over us, going round and round, the finest sight I have ever seen. Wait, what? Airplanes supporting horse cavalry? Yeah, this to me is one of the finest anachronisms in this whole affair. According to the logbook of Lieutenant TLW Stalabras, 3 Squadron RFC, he and his gunner were flying an artillery observation mission. When they spotted Germans hiding in a sunken road and in a cornfield, who were getting ready to give the cavalry a really bad day. So he flew circles around the Germans as his gunner unleashed on them with his machine gun. But not only that, they did an aerial sketch of the German positions and dropped it off to both the cavalry and British artillery. So what we're seeing here is a combined arms operation, close air support of cavalry operations with intelligence provided to artillery. That's exactly what it was. Although it certainly wasn't planned that way, luck really does have a say in the outcome of a battle. So these horsemen have now carved their way about a mile and a half across no man's land and into the German line with some cas, we'll call it, and are sitting uh, right in the middle of the enemy. And that Deccan horse officer said, we stuck with sword and lance about 40 of them, a glorious sight. It reminds me of this account of another British cavalryman when he was interviewed in 1985 about a cavalry charge against the Turks in 1917. Sword, slash, slash, slash. See? Then someone appears. Sword over the horse's head. Dig in, out again. Then that one appears over there. You simply reverse it. Twist your wrist and slice at him. And then that side. Of course, everybody's doing the same thing, you see, so you have to be careful you're not wounding your next-door neighbor. That's pretty horrific. Exactly. As if all this new stuff in World War I wasn't enough. Gas, high explosives, machine guns. It still managed to encapsulate all the old horrors of war, too. Now that the cavalry had broken through, though, and have a foothold, and taken some prisoners to boot, they have to hold on to what they've won. The Germans, of course, try to rush in reinforcements, but they're cut to bits by British machine guns who spot their movement. 
While the seventh guards consolidate their positions, Deccan Horse is still out in front as advance guards, and as you can imagine, are catching hell from every German in the area. A German machine gun from the direction of Longueval starts firing on them, but it too gets the nasty surprise when the cavalry unload their own machine gun detachment and put the Germans out of action. But this isn't what cavalry is really used for, and so the Deccan horse is pulled back alongside the 7th as night falls. Nick of time, too, as German artillery starts pummeling high wood, searching for these audacious horsemen who dared break their lines. So now there are these two cavalry regiments hunkered down around what's left of high wood in the middle of the night. And remarkably, they are never found by German artillery fire. Remarkable, because how the hell do you hide thousands of horses and men? Carefully, I guess. That luck of war, it held again. It was a really misty morning on July 15th, and during the night, a German three-man patrol stumbled on a listening post of the Deccan horse. One German was killed, two captured, and the cavalry remained hidden. But if we go back to the original intent of this whole thing, it was to seize the ground around Highwood and keep the initiative. The cavalry is given the order to withdraw that morning around 3.30 a.m., which they do, into the mist, not losing a single horse or man, at least apart from those who had been lost in the charge itself, which is still remarkable. But what about the overall objective of the battle? The thing is, this story makes up only a tiny portion of the Battle of Bazentin Ridge, which makes up only a tiny portion of the Battle of the Somme. The Entente forces eventually quote-unquote won the Somme offensive, if all you're looking for is a binary measure of success, but one that belies the true nature of the battles. More accurately, Entente forces gained about six miles of ground over the course of the four-and-one-half-month-long offensive, a distance probably not so dissimilar from the ride made by Deck and Horace on the evening of July 14th. These few miles come at the cost of millions of casualties, 102 coming from the Deccan Horse itself on that fateful day. It does make the question a bit more difficult to answer, doesn't it? As for the overall object of the battle, the cavalry did what it was supposed to do, and did it well. The battle itself raged on for days, but eventually halted in the rain and mud and disappointment of the Somme. In the end, hundreds of thousands of casualties later, nothing had really changed. You see, while Deck and Horse might have been successful in their charge on High Wood that day, it was at the cost of 130 mounts and 102 men. For those who lost their mounts, sometimes almost immediately after beginning the charge, they were little more than the least effective of infantrymen. This is combined with the fact that you obviously didn't choose when your mount got shot, even if you were in the middle of no man's land. And this is all in spite of the fact that, as a measure of technological achievement, the Battle of the Somme was a revolutionary moment in warfare. Infantry, airplanes, and artillery all coming together for little to nothing. Of course, the advances made in the Great War hardly stopped there. If they did, we wouldn't be here talking about our series on armor. Cavalry units who found themselves in other parts of the war faced the same circumstances. There was always going to be the artillery. 
there was always going to be the trench warfare, and there was always going to be the machine gunner waiting to shoot their horse out from under them. If you're a commanding officer considering your options for an offensive, the advantages of cavalry in this environment are pretty slim. But that's not to say a useful alternative to horses was immediately apparent. Something, anything, had to fill in the gap they left. The powers that be found something that just might be able to fill it in armor. Of course, there was much work to be done to get it battlefield ready. Doing so would require combining multiple existing technologies to create a platform that could traverse the cratered landscape, take on machine gun nests, and live to fight another day at the end of it. And of course, find officers who could effectively lead units of such Frankenstein creations. Fortunately, one was found in a young captain by the name of George Patton. War Stories is written by Angry Staff Officer and me, Aiden Dobkin. I also produce the show. You can find us on Twitter at War Stories Cast. Staffer and I can be found at PPT Sapper and Aiden Dobkin, respectively. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, all of which can be found on our website at www.warstoriescast.com. If you enjoyed this episode and the more that'll come in season one, I have a couple requests for you. Firstly, Please send it to a friend, work colleague, or family member whom you think would enjoy it. As we're just launching, a big part of what goes into our day-to-day efforts is making sure that it's hitting the right ears. Second, if you're looking to do even more, there's a couple ways you can do so. One is rating us on iTunes. It's how we get outside our current networks and find more people like yourself who might love war stories but haven't yet heard about us. We're also running a Patreon campaign for war stories. Patrons of the show get some cool perks like episode transcripts with more primary resources and research than we can hope to fit into 45 minutes, extended cut episodes where we talk about what went into making the show, surprises we learned while writing it, and more. You can find us there at patreon.com backslash war stories. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>